0: Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, registered dietitian and weight loss coach, and you're listening to the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast, a place for practical advice for women looking to balance their hormones, ditch dieting, and discover mindset shifts that will keep you motivated and empowered on your healthy eating journey. Are you ready to get started? Hey there, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I'm talking all about binge eating with my expert guest, Dr. Glenn Livingston. He's a veteran psychologist and the author of the successful book, Never Binge Again, as well as a daily blogger on psychologytoday.com. After a personal journey out of obesity and binge eating, Glenn spent decades researching the psychology behind overeating, as well as what causes us to binge eat and have this troublesome relationship with food. He also consulted for many big food companies about the psychology of eating, and he kind of got a behind-the-scenes look at how these companies formulate our food and possibly kind of intentionally making it slightly addictive, which we're going to talk about today. Dr. Livingston's unique way of approaching food choices has helped countless of individuals to develop a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. This has transformed the lives of many individuals, and in this episode, he's going to share how his method works and what the approach is all about. It's important for me that you know that Dr. Livingston is not promoting a specific diet, but rather he helps people understand and overcome what leads to overeating and what leads us to make food choices that are less desirable or making us feel guilty or shameful and how we can move toward making the food choices that we want and how to heal that relationship with food. His approach is very different and some may even say opposite to the food freedom method that teaches how to let go of food rules and not avoid or restrict anything, which is why I wanted him to come on the show. I want to share with you other methods, even if they don't fully align with my personal beliefs around healing your relationship with food. Since I'm well aware that there are other helpful approaches out there and specifically the method that Dr. Livingston is teaching has helped so many people and therefore may be helpful for you as well. So my goal is always to provide you with options and different points of view on the topics that I cover here on the show, especially when it comes to something as complex as binge eating and again, healing your relationship with food. One size fits all is likely not going to work. There is no such thing. So I want you to have options and get information about different approaches so that you can find what works best for you. Now, you may not agree with everything Dr. Livingston says today, or you may not believe that it can be beneficial for you, and I want you to know that that is okay. I still encourage you to listen to the full interview, process the information, and think about what aspects of the Never Binge Again philosophy you can leverage to your benefit. So without any further ado, let's get into my interview with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Dr. Livingston, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, likewise. Um, Tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, what kind of clients you work with.
1: Yeah, so that's a loaded question. I could talk for 45 minutes about it, so you'll have to interrupt me. Um, The most important thing to know is that I'm not just a psychologist who decided to work with overeaters. I'm someone who used to be obese myself. And I struggled for about 30 years with that. I, I specifically did not work with Overeader because I had struggles myself. And um, I, I was a child and family psychologist, and I was also a consultant for industry, mostly big food and big pharma. And I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war. Um, but I'm making up for that now. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm from a family of psychologists. Uh, there are actually 17 therapists in my family. and. If something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it how it feels and nobody knows how to <laughs> fix it. <laughs> um, but, but it's important because that was always my orientation to life and it was the most important thing to me. And when I was about 17, I figured out, because I'm 6'4 and I'm moderately muscular, if I worked out for a couple hours a day, I could eat anything I wanted to. You know, a whole pizza or two six bars of chocolate, box of muffins. If you, if you stopped at a 7-Eleven and they were out of pizza and Pop-Tarts in Long Island, it's probably because I got there before you. It's, uh, it was that kind of thing. But it, when I was a kid, I wasn't heavy. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was like a superpower. It was not a problem. Um, I got married at 22 years old, and I went to graduate school, and I started seeing patients. And it was two hours away. So I'd drive two hours in one direction and two hours in the other direction. And between being married and seeing patients and helping to run a business, I, I just didn't have the time to work out like I did before. In fact, you know, I could barely work out two hours a week, not two hours a day. And my metabolism was slowing down. But I, I found that the food had a life of its own. Like I, I just kept on eating the way that I was eating because I'd gotten used to it. And I I now know that it has something to do with industry and how the foods are set up, but I didn't know that back then. Um, And it really bothered me. It really, really bothered me, not so much because I was really big initially, but because, um, you know, to be a good psychologist, you have to lend people your soul. It's not really about intellectually figuring out how the puzzle pieces fit together. I used to think people would come in and make a presentation, and I'd say, well, move this over here, move that over here, and your life will be all better. And they'd say, gee, thanks, doc. I'll get right on that, you know? (laughs) Um, But it's more about getting people to love and trust you enough that they're willing to take those risks in the first place. And you can't do that if you're not fully present, if you're not lending them your soul. People don't care how much you know unless they know how much you, you care.
0: It's so true. It's absolutely true. I think it's true in any counseling profession. So I can definitely relate to that. Um, Yeah, so go ahead.
1: It's not just about the knowledge. It's really not just about the knowledge. And so that bothered me because I wanted to be a great psychologist. And coming from the family that I came from, I figured that if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And it must be a psychological problem that I have. So I figured there must be a hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I'd stop trying to fill the hole in my stomach. And so I went to all the best psychologists and psychiatrists, and um, I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I even did this 40,000-person study on the internet back in the days when clicks were cheap, where I looked at the relationship between different life stressors and the foods that people overeat. We'll come back to that in a minute. But, but um, and and I, I had a... Um, You know, because I didn't have kids and my wife traveled for business, I had a lot of time in my hands, and I worked at home. I never commuted, so that's how I was able to have a clinical practice and an advertising consulting practice at the same time. Um, There were eventually three things which led me to the conclusion that I was going down the wrong path. First of all, I kept getting heavier and heavier, and one point I was probably almost two hundred and eighty pounds, and my triglycerides were through the roof and the doctors were telling me I was going to die before I'm 40 if I kept up like this. Um, but when I would work for the big food companies, I saw that there were millions of dollars going into hiring these rocket scientists, for back, lack of a better word. You know, all of these PhDs and engineers and food scientists who were, were engineering these hyper-palatable foods Concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins uh, that were designed to hit the bliss point in our reptilian brains and the very, like, they're pushing those evolutionary buttons without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And so every time we're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache just laughing all the way to the bank. I mean, it's not quite that simple, and there are other factors in play, and consumers actually want to be lied to. We like good news about our bad habits. But, but in the end, these are very powerful forces, and people think that you know, they can resist and it doesn't affect them, but you know, it's been like 40 years of food science designed to do this, and they know how to create addiction. Then I, I looked at some of the animal studies on what happens when you short circuit the pleasure center in the the brain. So back in the late 1950s, early 60s, there was a series of studies by Milner and Olds, starting with rats, where they put an electrode in the pleasure center of the rat's brain, and they wired it to a lever that the rat could press whenever it wanted to. And it turned out that those rats would press that lever thousands of times per day, thousands, to the exclusion of their survival needs. Mm -hmm. So a nursing mother rat would abandon her pup to press that lever thousands of times per day. A a male rat would climb over painful electrical grids. A starving rat would ignore food. Their survival drive had been hijacked, and the result was severe self-neglect. And now, I don't think that the industry is putting electrodes in our brains. But when you can walk out of McDonald's and see a Burger King across the street in almost every city in the country, you know I think we're getting to the point where you, we can say there are some chemical electrodes that are fairly effective at stealing our survival drive. And so many people say, "I just don't like fruit and vegetables anymore." Well, that's what we evolved with—you know, fruit, vegetables, maybe you know lean meats, depending upon your dietary philosophy. And the fact that we don't have a taste for that anymore, uh, and we're instead seeking these bags and boxes and containers, is evidence that those survival drives have been stolen. If I I give you a chocolate bar every day, your pleasure system is going to downregulate, and you're not going to be able to taste the subtle difference in flavor between a delicious apple versus a gala apple versus a Fuji apple. You're not going to enjoy the taste of... um, arugula versus romaine versus, you know, some other type of of lettuce. And we're supposed to be able to enjoy those things. So I said, well, this is a very powerful force outside of me that has nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough or, you know, didn't have enough attention for my dad. Um, This is an external force that has nothing to do with love. Then I discovered that neurologically, the Reptilian brain, which is where these survival drives live, the very primitive survival drives, feast and famine, fight or flight, it doesn't know love. So I'm spending 30 years trying to love myself more out of the addiction, but the part of the brain that responds to addiction doesn't really know love. It knows eat, mate, or kill. That's what the lizard brain knows. It was the later evolution of the the mammalian brain that said, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, What impact is that going to have on the people that you love, on your tribe, on your family? And then it was the, so kind of think this is the lizard brain, this is the mammalian brain, and then on top of that is the the neocortex, which says before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is it going to have on your learned long-term plans? what impact is it going to have on your character, on the kind of person you want to be in society, on the contribution that you want to make, on your sense of spirituality and music and art and everything that makes us uniquely human and your long-term plans? I said, wow, so this is all about this thing inside me. This is, this is all about this, this survival drive that's almost being stolen. And then I looked at the advertising industry and I saw how they were beaming five to 7,000 messages at us per year um, all about food, but you know, how many of them are about fruit and vegetables, maybe a half a dozen. Right. And they were very good at faking us out into believing that these food-like substances were necessary for survival.
0: I'm curious for my listeners to know, were you working as a consultant for the food industry during the time that you were in in the thick of this, of struggling yourself? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. Um,
1: And what I saw in terms of the way that things were packaged up and advertised was that they were legally lying to us. So there was a guy who was a vice president of a major food bar manufacturer. And just before he was going to step down, we'd become pretty friendly. And he said to me, I got to tell you something, Glenn. The most profitable insight we ever had was to take the vitamins out of the bar. I said, you took them out of the bar? We took them out of the bar because they didn't taste good and they were expensive. We put the money into the packaging instead. And we made the packaging very diverse and colorful and shiny. And I said, wow, because a a diversity of colors and a vibrantness in nature signals the availability of a diversity of nutrients. That's what our evolutionary brains have evolved to see. Mm -hmm. Think of a salad with bright green lettuce and yellow carrots and blueberries and you know, cabbage and tomatoes. They tell you to eat the rainbow because the rainbow represents a diversity of nutrients. But in this case, and I don't mean to single them out because this goes on all across the industry. In this case, they are faking us out. They are, it's kind of like Robert Childina wrote a book called Influence where he reviews the, um, reviews how this happens in nature sometimes. There are, for example, there's a, there's a big fish and a little fish, and they have a symbiotic, mutually productive relationship. The little fish likes to clean the big fish's fish is teeth. Is it fish's teeth or fish teeth? I don't know. Anyway, they, the little fish does a little dance in front of the big fish, and the big fish goes into a trance uh, and opens its mouth, and the little fish comes in and cleans the big fish's teeth. The little fish gets a meal. The big fish gets a teeth cleaning. Everybody's happy. Along comes this other parasitic fish with very sharp teeth. And the parasitic fish has learned to mimic the nice fishes, the nice little fishes dance. And it puts the big fish in a trance, the big fish goes, uh, and then the little fish comes in and eats them. it's eats, eats, mm-hmm. eats his gums and eats his lips. and And I think that's a good model for a lot of what's going on. I don't think it's For the most part, conscious and purposeful. I think most of the people that work at these companies are good people. I think that people like good news about their bad habits. And so, you know, the market is asking to be lodged to. But it's happening nonetheless, and it's an external force. It doesn't have to do with the fact that I was in a bad marriage or that I was upset or anything like that. Um, So I put these three things together. There's the neurology that says there's no love in my reptilian brain. This part of me that's erroneously activating the feast and famine drive. There is an overwhelming force of the um, food industry and the, the substances they're engineering. And then there's an overwhelming force of the advertising industry. And then the addiction treatment industry says you can't resist even if you wanted to. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time because you've got a disease and you're powerless over these impulses or things that no human can resist. You have to surrender and go to these meetings with sponsors and, you know, sacrifice three or four times a week to, and, and I looked at the science behind that and there's no real evidence that that's any better than doing nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And, and so I said, wow. I said, am I just totally going down the wrong path? And maybe instead of, instead of trying to love myself thin and nurture my inner wounded child, maybe I have to be more like an alpha wolf. Like, because like, if an alpha wolf is, wolf is challenged for leadership of the pack, the alpha wolf doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a, a hug. It says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? It growls and it snarls. And I thought, there are other biological drives that are very powerful, which I comfortably live with all day long, right? Like, if I had to pee right now, if my bladder was pressing to, to urinate, I would say, I'm sorry, I'm talking to Daphna. I promise to do this interview. I'll take care of you in an hour, right? We have reproductive urges, but we don't run up and kiss attractive people on the street. We have all sorts of physiological drives that as good citizens, we're expected to subjugate to our desire to be a different type of person and participate in society. So why is this any different? So here's the embarrassing part. And then I'll wrap it up and let you talk for a little bit. I decided that I was going to call my reptilian brain my inner pig. Uh, I was not a vegan back then. I, w- I, was, um, I, I wasn't thinking about it. It was going to be very private. I just thought maybe this is going to work for me personally. So I called this thing my inner pig. And I would make very bright lines in the sand. I, I read a book called Rational Recovery, where they were doing something like this with drugs and alcohol. And so I would make very bright lines in the sand So I knew the difference between healthy and unhealthy behavior. So for example, I would say, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. I'll only ever have chocolate on Saturday and Sunday. And that way, if I heard a voice in my head that said, you know what, Glenn? You worked out hard enough. You're not going to gain any weight. You could start again tomorrow. And besides, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, and that's really a plant, so therefore it's a vegetable. You go have and have some, get some chocolate. Yippee, let's do it now. When I heard that voice, I would say, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my inner pig. And it's squealing for pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. As ridiculous and crude as that sounds, and remember, I'm a sophisticated psychologist. I ran this multi-million-dollar company for a lot of years. Uh, as ridiculous and crude as that sounds, That's what started waking me up at the moment of impulse to remember who I was and gave me the ability to make the right decision. It wasn't miraculous. Um, I didn't make the right decision all the time, but I lost my sense of powerlessness and hopelessness. It's like my belief in my free will was restored. And over time, I said, well, if I have the power to make these choices, nobody's telling me what to eat. I might as well make rules that I'll comply with so I would soften some rules and tighten some other ones. There were things I would always do. There were things I would only do in specific situations. And before you knew it, I was complying, you know, 90, 95% of the time. And I slowly but surely, um, my weight came down, my triglycerides came down. I got rid of my rosacea and eczema and psoriasis. And um, like over the course of a couple of years, it was a miracle for me. And I was going to keep it really private. I, I would keep a journal of all the crazy things the pig would say and why they were wrong. Like when the pig says it's just as easy to start tomorrow, it's actually not true because at every moment you're either reinforcing your addictions or extinguishing them. If you have a craving today and you indulge that craving today, you've dug a deeper neurological groove to get out of tomorrow. So if you're in a hole, you should stop digging. Mm -hmm. And, And I would research all the crazy things the pig would say. I found it would tell me a half a truth and a bigger lie. And I had answers for everything. And as I was getting divorced in 2015, I was a minor partner in a publishing company. And the CEO asked me if I could write a book so we could do some marketing experiments and attract some better authors. And I said, well, I have this crazy journal that I kept for eight years of me versus my pig. And he said, I love it. Turn it into a book. And I did. He calls me back two weeks later and says, Glenn, donuts are pig slop. I don't eat donuts. I don't let farm animals. Tell me what to do he proceeds to lose 100 pounds over the next couple of years. And, and along the way, we published the book and it took off. And now I've got almost a million readers and people don't quite recognize my name, but they see me in a bookstore and they point at me and they go, big guy, big guy, <laughs> which is not something you want to happen on a first date. But anyway.
0: <laughs> this is really interesting. So I have a few questions for you. Is this process now how you work with clients? Do you- yeah clients this type of model of ending binge eating with this so would this be um supporting the idea that uh, of food as an addiction or not so much so because you're Um, using some elements of that but not necessarily going through like you said the you know overeaters anonymous whole process can you talk a little bit about that
1: um i could talk a lot about that (laughs) Um, I do believe in the phenomenon of addiction, but I don't believe it's a disease and I don't believe that we're powerless over it. So I believe that it feels like that. I believe that every bone in people's body says, just hand over the chocolate or nobody gets hurt. I believe it feels like a matter of survival and I believe that people have the experience of having no other choice. That having been said, I think that addiction is a very well-worn um, neurological groove in the brain, which focuses people on the object of desire. I actually came up with this. I, I write for Psychology Today also, and I was talking to the chief editor there, and we kind of ironed out like, their view of addiction, and I thought, you know what, I really agree with that. it. It's a well-myelinated pathway that you know, efficiently allows the brain to save time. We're always looking to save time and energy. And so if we see a trigger and then we know this reward is available, the brain will very slowly phase out the intervening thoughts and delays um, so that it becomes a repetitive um, experiences compulsive behavior. So I think that it can be a hard mountain to climb, but I don't think that it's a matter of powerlessness or disease. If you take if you take um, an alcoholic and you put him in a jail cell, versus taking someone with tuberculosis and putting them in a jail cell, uh, someone with tuberculosis in a jail cell in the absence of treatment will get worse. Someone who is an alcoholic, you put him in a jail cell, the behavior gets better. So I, I don't think that it's—I don't think it's a disease. I think that's a mistake. What I tell my people. And this is one of the reasons I don't offer it as a doctor. I offer this as, as a coach in education because, you know, it's very prevalent in my, my profession for people to view it as a disease. I think we don't have a disease. I think that we have healthy appetites that have been corrupted by industry. That's what I think. And it's, that helps people to remove the sense of shame about it.
0: Right.
1: And in the absence of shame, it's easier to overcome the addiction. That's what I find.
0: And other than the industry, which we really have no control over, uh, at least the average person doesn't, are right. there other things that predispose someone, you think, to having that pattern, that brain pattern of addiction with food?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you know, when I did that 40,000 person study, my, um, one of the biggest findings I had, because I was most interested in chocolate because I restarted my binges with chocolate and I would have pizza and everything else. One of the most interesting findings was that people who struggle with chocolate tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. And so I called my mom and I said, mom, I had this finding and I'm I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm not really happy. So it's true. I'm lonely and brokenhearted. But how did this all get set up? Because you're not only my mom, you're a therapist. So you must think about these kind of things. And she gets this horrendous look on her face. She says, I'm so sorry. And I say, mom, it's okay. Whatever it was, it was 40 years ago. This was a long time ago I answered the question. I'm, I'm 56 now. But she said, when you're one-year-old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army at Walter Reed and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified. You know, you're, I was you know, trying to get pregnant with your sister and I thought I'm gonna be an army widow with, with two small kids and I was terrified. At the same time, my father, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison And he was guilty, and I didn't know he was doing these things. And so I'd idolized him my whole life, and I was horrendously depressed. So half the time when you came running to me for healthy food or a hug or just to play, I didn't have the wherewithal because I was sitting and staring at the wall, feeling anxious and depressed. So what I did is I got a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup, and I kept it in a refrigerator on the floor and i say glenn go get your bosco and you go running over to it and you'd open the refrigerator you'd open the bottle and you'd be crawling over to it and you go into a chocolate sugar coma now um if you talk to most overeaters a lot of them don't have that crystal clarity with a, an origin story the way that i do because i was really persistent in trying to figure that out and it, it turned out to be a good conversation to have because um you know, I could forgive myself. I learned a lot more about my mom. You know, we had a big hug and it was, it was a good conversation to have. I like to have those conversations. But that conversation actually made things worse for me with chocolate. The reason it made things worse is because my inner pig said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can get out of this marriage and find the love of our life, we're going to have to keep on eating chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some more. And so I do think that there are patterns like that that predispose us. I do think that um, there are differences in you know, the level of serotonin and dopamine and, you know, pleasurable brain chemicals that people produce, you know, genetically. Um, and I think that's also trained. I, I, I do think that there are very key differences that are identifiable, but I don't find that finding that out really makes all that much difference makes much more difference the practicalities of learning how to separate your constructive versus destructive thoughts about food, making sure that you're well-nourished because you can't do any of this and make it work unless you're you know, regularly well-nourished. I tell people that food addiction is not just an addiction to overeating, it's an addiction to the feast and famine cycle. Most overeaters are very good dieters and they They go through these periods like the nursery rhyme. When she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was horrid, right? Um, So I think that there are all these patterns. But but in the end, let's say the emotion is a fire. You could have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace within the home. And that's not a liability. That's an asset. That becomes the center of hearth and home. People... Gather around and they tell stories and they make memories and they hug and they cry. Um, it's only if there's a hole in the fireplace that an ash can get out and burn down the house. And I think that the hole in the fireplace is something that's poked by the pig coming up with all those rationalizations. You could just start tomorrow. You worked out hard enough. Um, you've always failed before, therefore you're going to fail again. It's not worth trying. I can't get you now, but I'll get you later. Like all of those justifications, I think, are the things that people need to learn to to disempower and deal with. And if they do that and they simultaneously take care of their authentic bodily needs, I find that they can walk their way through almost no matter what caused the addiction in the first place. So Mm -hmm. I focus on much more practicalities than the why of it all.
0: Okay. So this is definitely a different approach than a lot of other people that I've talked to about binging, where, you know food rules or restriction or having those boundaries is something that is almost seen to, to make binges worse. Um, I think I'm the
1: devil. Yeah. I think most people think I'm the devil. I I
0: like to bring different perspectives. So I do think that it's important to, you know, be open-minded about it because everyone will respond differently, right? Everyone will, will find different treatments that would work for them. So what would you say about that? Like on the, you know, level of uh, food freedom and having no rules and and not having um, the mentality of good or bad, which I don't think you're saying that, but um, I, I do find that you know a lot of people see that as the culprit as opposed to something that is helpful. They do.
1: They do. Yeah. Um, there is a philosophy out there that says that any restriction, including mental restriction, will cause a binge and there's something to it. Um, Binge eaters tend to be rebellious in nature. Um, I think it's because most of us were fed against their own best interests when we were kids. I mean, my my mom used to put, besides the chocolate Bosco, every morning when I was a kid, there was another box of chocolate Pop-Tarts on the the counter, and I would eat the whole thing in the morning, and that was my breakfast. So you know, I, I wasn't really fed in my best interest and I was taught bad patterns. And so I kind of had to figure out how to nutrify myself and rules didn't work for me at that time. Um, I think that's a developmental phase and there are a lot of people who get better by working a more mindful, intuitive approach with food. You know, try to be present while you're eating Eat when you're hungry. Stop when you're full. Um, ask yourself how you're feeling beforehand. Don't sneak anything. Sit down at the table. Um, it's all good advice. It's all good advice. There are two problems with it, I think, that um, which led me to the approach that I have and which I think leads a lot of people to use my approach when they're not happy with the other one. One is that you wind up eating a lot of food that's not really healthy for you. I mean, if, if you look at what the industry is really putting in food, I don't know how you can't say that it's bad. Like, I, there's flavored, Legally, there's flavored cardboard in some of the food that we eat. Literally flavored cardboard. And how do you, when that's going on, not draw a line and say, look, I don't eat dirt, I don't eat rocks, I don't eat duty, so I'm not going to eat flavored cardboard, right? Right. Um, and that's a gross exaggeration but have you picked up a food label lately and looked at what's in you know some of these processed foods so how do you say that that's just as good as you know lean protein or a big salad like how do you how do you do that and so there are a lot of people who are trying to follow this mindful approach who say i want to be healthier and i think people tend to make rules for themselves anyway i think it's just a natural part of human psychology. And we we walk into a diner, we don't take the $10 tip on the table when the waitress goes to get her menus, even if nobody's going to see us, because we've got this unwritten rule that we're not a thief, we never take other people's money. So I, I find that articulating specifically where the bullseye is and what the boundaries of the bullseye are, um, it helps us to become the kind of people that we want to become with regards to food, the ultimate aim of this system is not to have a bunch of Nazi policemen, you know, telling you to eat this and not eat that. Um, I eventually evolved to the place where I just had a rule that says I'll never eat chocolate again. And people will say, "Well, how do you do that? We give up chocolate forever?" I said, "I don't think of it like that. I just became the kind of person that doesn't eat chocolate." As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago. I, I took that rule off my plan. I don't know exactly when. I just uh, I noticed that I don't have the rule on my plan anymore. But I just don't eat chocolate because I became a person who doesn't eat chocolate. It just looks like a big bag of chemicals to me. Um, so I, I think that the a better analogy would be if you're trying to develop your own behavioral economy, it's very much like being a city traffic planner. So You assess the dangerous intersections. Where are you in trouble with food? And you put the right level of traffic control there. Maybe it's a stoplight. Like if there are a lot of dangerous intersections, like in the middle of Manhattan where I used to live, there's a stoplight at every corner. And if it wasn't for that stoplight, we wouldn't have the freedom to navigate through Manhattan because there would be gridlock all the time. Um, On the other hand, way out in the country in Long Island where I went to school, there are roads where the speed limit is 55 or even 65. And there's no, not even a stop sign because you can see for miles in that direction. And so I, I think that people need to kind of go through and figure out what level of control they need around each trigger food. And then once you know the rules of the road, you kind of forget about it. I mean, when I get in the car, I'm just driving. I make some phone calls. I listen to music or a podcast. And I feel like I have more freedom, not less. And so I, I personally think this is a better solution where you use rules to protect you from the really dangerous food intersection. You use a minimum of them because you don't want to put stoplights where you don't need stoplights. And then you allow yourself to enjoy your life and enjoy food and eat it mindfully and without judgment between those lines. So that's...
0: Yeah, so it basically combines both approaches. And it sounds like once, you know you practice the rule if you will many many times that new brain pathway develops and it doesn't feel like a rule anymore it just feels like who you are and what you do and it's second. the yeah right so i think that makes sense um do you find that you know you have to help people define the rules like do you really you know need to get specific with them like you did as far as certain foods or how does that work
1: I find that people need help to define it for themselves. I find that autonomy and dependence are very key issues in addiction. And if, you, if I tell people, this is what you should eat, first of all, I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a dietician, I'm not a medical doctor. So I don't really have any business doing that. And secondly, I find if you tell them what they should eat, then their inner pig goes to work right away saying, that doctor's diet is no good. And until we can find another word, we're going to have to keep on binging. So, so I find people need to autonomously, autonomously decide what autonomously, use Mr. have and Mr. time when you're speaking. <laughs> um, they have to autonomously decide what, um, what rules they want to follow. And I start them with one simple rule. I find that most people, they try to, set up this diet where they're going to lose a bunch of weight really quickly. And it's like their pig is setting the bar too high. And to tell them you have to go to kindergarten before you go to college. So what's the smallest possible step you could take towards turning the ship around that wouldn't feel like too much of a burden, but you know it would make a difference? Um, And if you're listening in the audience, you might want to think about that. There are things like there's this trucker that ate fast food, three meals a day, every day. And he says he's never going to stop doing that. Uh, but Then he said, well, you know, maybe I just won't go back for seconds. And he proceeds to lose 150 pounds, not just from that one rule, but because that got things going in the right direction, Then he wanted to add one more simple thing. So mm-hmm. so I do work with people very carefully to set up a food plan. Um, and we have worksheets and guidelines and things like that. But it's it's up to them. I don't tell them what to eat.
0: Mm-hmm. How often do you see trauma <clears throat> as part of binge eating disorder and you know food addiction like well, all the time all the time yeah all the
1: time yeah yeah
0: and is that something that would obviously have to be unpacked before any treatment plan like is that something that takes priority over anything else that's going on um, at the moment? Well,
1: well again i'm not offering this as a treatment right um, yeah. I, I, I do do that kind of treatment in my private practice but i'm not offering this particular philosophy as a treatment um, Here's an interesting perspective. This is is maybe the opposite perspective of what you're saying. Most people believe that we're going to keep overeating until we work through our traumas because because if we can't tolerate the emotions, then we try to change our mood with food. And until we can tolerate the emotions, then we're not going to be able to change our mood without food, and therefore, the emotions are primary. I think it's actually the opposite. And I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why. Um, First of all, it's difficult to get to the emotions in order to unpack the trauma and solve that from a psychological perspective while the person is overeating because the nervous system has difficulty conducting the emotions when the digestive system is overloaded. Um, And there's a side point I want to make about numbing out if you remind me later on okay but but secondly there's another impact of eating what I would call pig slop or you know junk food to get a or comfort food quote-unquote when you're experiencing an emotion that you don't want to experience suppose you take and these studies have been done suppose you take a mammal and you wire them up as something that measures their perspiration and their respiration and their heart rate and their blood pressure. These are all physiological elements that increase when we experience anxiety or some other uncomfortable emotion, anger, even to some degree, you know, sadness or grief. And suppose that every time those indicators rose above a certain level, you gave that animal a reward. And they did this to baboons, for example. Every time the baboons and blood pressure was above a certain level, they gave it a reward, a food reward. You know what happened to those baboons is they learned to, they were conditioned to have high blood pressure all the time. And and so when you have an emotion, when you have those physiological experiences and then you eat a reward, you're teaching your body to, experience those emotions more. So you're kind of, if you, some people say they feel too anxious and they can't get to sleep um, without eating some slop or you know some pasta or some really big heavy meal, and they don't realize that they're actually teaching, the they're teaching themselves to make the problem worse. It's kind of like smoking is a good example. It does the same thing. People think that smoking calms them down. What smoking actually does is it conditions your body to have higher blood pressure and be more anxious all the time. And you get back to normal when you have a cigarette. But if you didn't have cigarettes at all, your anxiety level and your blood pressure would be much lower. Mm-hmm. So, so there's this alternative philosophy, this alternative hypothesis that says, you're really putting the cart before the horse. You should solve the eating problem first so that you stop reinforcing the difficult emotions and so that the difficult emotions come to the surface so you can deal with them in therapy in the first place. And thats I wasn't of that philosophy for all these years. People say it, they'll say, well, thanks, Dr. Sensitivity. Um, you know, I, I'm actually kind of a compassionate guy. And if, if you need a hug, I'll give you a hug. If you want to cry on my shoulder, you can cry on my shoulder. Um, but I don't think it's going to help you with the binge eating. It'll make you feel better. But I, I don't think it's going to help you with the binge eating. The last thing I want to say about it is that people think that they're overeating to quote unquote numb out. Um, you know, they, they need comfort food, they need to get away from those feelings. But when was the last time that you were at the dentist and the dentist said, You know, I'm I'm out of Novocaine today. Is it okay if I inject you with some chocolate instead? Right? <laughs> the dentist doesn't do that. Because there's something that chocolate does that's more than a numbing effect. We didn't have chocolate on the Savannah as we were evolving. We didn't have these concentrated forms of, um, you know, sugar and caffeine and theobromine and vanillin and all, all of the stimulation. Uh, it, it's kind of a drug. It, yeah, I mean, the
0: numbing would happen on an emotional level, of course. Like you wouldn't think or feel, you would feel immediate pleasure as opposed to having to deal, right? Like,
1: yeah, you would, you would, but you're, you're also getting high with food. Yeah. And I, I tell people, they need to recognize that ulterior motive because if you tell yourself you're just doing this for comfort or to numb out, then your pig is going to say all the time, I'm hurting so much, and I, I need some chocolate. And how, how could you do this to me? I really need more.
0: Yeah, and probably a higher threshold would have to be met each time because, and you having been involved with the food industry probably know this better than me, but like you said, these things keep, you know, you you will need to eat more and more to feel the same effect likely of certain substances because your brain or body will build some tolerance to that level.
1: Yeah, and it actually gets to the point that people feel like they need the substance just to feel normal.
0: Right. And they, they start Back to experience to
1: yeah. I mean they start to experience what we call anhedonia because their pleasure systems have been so hyper stimulated that they don't feel pleasure on a day-to-day basis in the way that nature intended. Mm. Unless they have the supersized stimuli.
0: Right. Okay. So I think that's really interesting. So do you feel like the higher rates of depression and And, you know, even a higher incidence of binge eating, I don't know if that's something that's been, I know, anecdotally, I can feel it in my practice and with the people that I work with. And certainly what's going on in the world right now is not helping. But do you feel like, you know, just being exposed to so many of these substances from processed foods and things like that is making it worse? I do.
1: I, I, I do think that. I can't prove that to you, but... Yeah. I actually might hire a researcher to go out and put that together, but I do think that.
0: Yeah, so it would make sense that, you know, like you said, it would be needed to eat these foods to just get back to neutral, to a to a level where you're feeling not good, not bad, just okay.
1: Yeah, and and it creates a wall where people think there's something wrong when they're not overstimulating themselves all the time when people successfully implement some of these rules and they stop binging on some of these foods, they often tell me they're experiencing this horrible sense of boredom, like something's really missing. Um, And I tell them that I'd like them to bear with it because it's a necessary evil. Um, This is the way life is. Life is not this overstimulated roller coaster. And you can even look at the rest of our inputs, you know, there, there are so many screens coming at us every day, scene changes in situation comedies and movies are more frequent than they used to be. Um, you know, all the, you know, car chases and scantily clad people and, um, you know, then all the hyper stimulation of our taste buds. When you opt out of that, or at least slow it down, it, it feels boring. But what happens if you stick with it is, first of all, your pleasure centers will upregulate. I think in like six to eight weeks, your taste buds double in sensitivity when you stop overstimulating them like that. And the rest of your nervous system does something very similar. And then your pleasure-seeking apparatus in the brain or like more generally the psychological concept of libido, the part of you that wants to create and connect and, and you know, get out in the world and make a difference, that starts to move towards healthier things. So, you know, now I find that I'm just as happy walking on the beach. I live on the beach and looking at the ocean right now. I'm just as happy walking on the beach. Um, in fact, infinitely more so than I used to be, you know, having a chocolate bench. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think it's critical that people know that there's often an authentic physical need behind the craving for junk food. So, I not only said I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. When I crave chocolate, I experimented with all these different smoothies, and I eventually found that if I have a whole head of kale juiced with six bananas, for whatever reason, that would kill the chocolate craving. It it doesn't it doesn't get me high the way the chocolate get me high, but it's like I scratch the itch and it's just not there anymore. And that's mm-hmm. how I that's how I really got off of chocolate.
0: Yeah, I think it's really. Key to to get to a point where you're not just avoiding the food, you're actually not desiring it. So you know, like people mention this to me with alcohol or things like that. When you've gone through recovery, it's not just about uh, resisting, avoiding it, and and kind of staying strong, if you will. It's really getting to that point where you've lost interest because. That food makes you feel X, Y, Z, or you know what the consequences are. Um, so you stop wanting it. You stop desiring it.
1: You're, and your pig will tell you that you're going to be tortured forever. And you can't give up chocolate. You're going to be tortured forever. But the truth is that that craving goes away a lot faster than you think. You know, like, like I think within six to eight weeks, my cravings were probably... Fifteen percent of what they were in the beginning. Mm -hmm. After a hundred hours, they were about half of what they were. Um, And you know, I just kept on developing methods to get through the urge. And um, a year and a half later, it just wasn't there at all. So Mm -hmm. it's like,
0: are, are there stages that you can identify in that process? Like almost like a. The only thing that comes to mind—it's a horrible analogy, but it's like a, a grieving process where there are different stages that someone will go through as they're healing. Is there a similar thing in this process from your experience? Um,
1: that's interesting—the stages of grief. I, I wonder if it would match that. I think of it more like a prisoner giving a life, given a life sentence, and it's different. If some people decide they're not going to give something up, like 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 I started in the beginning saying. I'm only going to have it on the weekend, and some people do that forever and they're fine. Um, but it's slower. The relinquishing of the cravings is slower when you when you do that than is if you give it up entirely. If you give a prisoner a life sentence, they go through a period where they still have hope and they want to make appeals, and they might be looking to escape the prison. You know, kind of digging or think of um, Count of Monte Cristo or one of those one of those movies. But over time, they when they realize that there is no hope, they stop making the effort to escape. If they feel like it's a waste of energy and time, and they just accept their situation and their lot in life. And they'll tell you that they don't want hope, that hope is torturous. And so I I find that um, that process goes on faster than people think it will, but it is very uncomfortable in the first. The first hundred hours are the hardest. I tell people you might just be a hundred hours from freedom, but but a couple of months and they're a totally different person. Mm-hmm. So, and I always tell them when you get over that wall, don't go back in reverse because it's a hard wall to get over. But once you're over the wall, keep running, man. So, interesting. yeah, I, I don't know if that's as sophisticated an answer as you really wanted. No, but. it's
0: good. I like I like it. I think it's very interesting. There are so many different ways to, to look at it. And I think that you know, someone doesn't have to be subscribing necessarily to one philosophy to recover. They can take a little bit of everything and, you know, so... Most people do. Right. Yeah. So you have to do a lot of trial and error and not just say, oh, well, this is not going to work or there's no hope for me and and just accept, you know, live in, in, in the pain and struggle that binge eating brings with it. Yeah. Um, so you have the book, Never Binge Again, right? I do. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the book? And so I'm assuming all of the things that we've talked about today are in the book, mm-hmm. um, as well as the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. You have a podcast. So I tell do. my listeners a little bit about where they can find you to learn more about these things. And
1: Oh, okay. Well, and then I'll tell you a little, a little bit about the book. Um, if you go to neverbingeagain.com and you click on the big red button, I'll give you three things. Uh, free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or a PDF format. Uh, there are also paid versions in paperback or Audible, but it's free for Kindle Nook or a PDF. Uh, I'll give you a set of food plan starter t- templates where we comprise a set of potential rules, hypothetical rules, which you devise for yourself um, for whatever dietary philosophy you might be following. So we work with people that are, you know, Whole Foods plant-based like me, or ketogenic, or point counters or calorie counters. It it doesn't really matter, but there's a set of starter templates for you there. And um, I know this sounds like a really weird and harsh philosophy in the abstract. Like, why does Daphne have this doctor around that has a pig inside of him? Um, you must be wondering. But it's actually a very compassionate, life-giving philosophy. And I, I recorded a bunch of sessions, which you can also download for free, um, where you can hear people moving from feeling confused and hopeless and powerless about food to feeling enthusiastic, excited, and confident they can make a difference in, in just one session. So I wanted you to hear all that as at NeverbenchAgain.com, click the big red button. What, what the book really is, is an edited journal of all the crazy things that one's pig could say and you could call it your food monster you could call it your junkyard dog whatever you want to call it you don't have to call it a pig that was just what I did kind of wish I didn't sometimes but it's (laughs) we have almost a million copies I can't change it now Um, and it was really my journal and I turned it into an allegory of sorts of me versus the pig and I um, I you know I'd studied persuasive copywriting for a long time so I knew how to write it in such a way as to convince the reader if they wanted to how to separate their thoughts like that and really take it seriously. And um, a lot of people tell me that it was really life-changing. I've written seven more books since then on specialty topics. So there's a book on nighttime overeating. There's a book on specific triggers. You know, what do you do that time of month? What do you do when you're tired, lonely, hungry, angry, that, that kind of thing? Okay. um yeah, I'll link to
0: that in the show notes so people can easily find it um on your website
1: great. great thank you so much
0: yeah are there final thoughts you want to leave us off with or anything that we didn't touch on that you think is important for someone listening dealing with binge eating how can they get started or what are some of the tips that you would give kind of to wrap up
1: I, i'm going to say two things first of all it's simpler than you think it is what if What if there's so much information and so much confusion out there? You don't have to believe me, you just have to try it. Like, what, what if I'm right? What if it's as simple as drawing a very clear, unambiguous line, deciding that any thought in your head that suggests that you cross the line is your inner enemy, and then looking at the specific reasons that thing says you should cross it and finding the lie within it. What if that could make all the difference? Regardless of whether you are you know, diagnosed as this or that, regardless of whether you had these special traumas in your life. What if it was really that simple to start turning the ship around? Isn't it worth a shot? It's totally free. And I think you should, I think it's worthwhile. The other thing that stops a lot of people is they're, um, they're afraid that the discipline is going to interfere with their freedom. And Jim Rohn said a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. A life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And I really think that freedom sits on top of discipline. I don't think that's opposed to it. Um, I was a jazz musician in my youth. And the reason I could express my soul was because I spent so much time studying the scales in a disciplined way. And because my fingers know where those notes are, um, I can always get back to them if I stray from them. And I can I know what the boundaries are of how I can express my emotions when I'm on the piano. It's only because of the discipline of the engineer that constructed your car, that designed your car, it's only because of their discipline that when you turn your steering wheel 30 degrees to the right, your wheels turn 30 degrees to the right, and you can actually drive to different places in the town, which way expands your radius of locomotion. You have a lot more freedom because of that discipline. What what if adding discipline to your life would give you more freedom and not less. So a life of discipline is better than a life of regret.
0: I love that. You're yeah. leaving us with a great message of hope for people. And yeah, I agree with that. I think a lot of people feel trapped with their disordered eating or with binge eating. So there's definitely freedom on the recovery side of that. I absolutely agree yeah. with that.
1: And I don't mean to invalidate the need to get a you know, psychotherapeutic treatment or psychiatric treatment for Um, you know, depression or anxiety or Mm -hmm. bipolar or something like that. I I think those are all legitimate clinical entities that require treatment, but it's separate and apart from what I teach people.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you provide a lot of great resources. um, Some of them you've mentioned, so I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Thank you, dear. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank you for being here today, Dr. Livingston. This was great. Thank you. Yeah. I encourage all my listeners to go check out your stuff.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a delight.
0: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the interview and I've found a lot of great insights, strategies, and information in what we discussed today. For more information, please visit the show notes below so you can get all the details, links, and recommendations that were discussed today. And if you like this podcast and what you've heard today, leave a review and subscribe to the show so you never miss when new episodes are out and you also help more people find this information. I'll be here again next week with a new episode. Until then, be well. Bye for now.